Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host Gemma and today I'm going to talk to you about all things honey. Delicious! So I have mentioned before that I didn't get into beekeeping for the honey. It's a secondary interest or an added benefit. Um, Actually growing up I didn't even like honey. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to admit that as a beekeeper, but I really disliked honey quite aggressively as a child. And this could be because I had never had local or raw honey before. Um, I had only ever seen the little plastic bear-shaped bottles in the supermarket where it all looks the same. It's all the same color. It's all the same consistency and it all tasted the same and I just thought it was really strong tasting and I didn't like it at all. In fact when I had um, coughs and colds as a small child my mum used to make me a mixture of um, freshly squeezed lemon juice, one tablespoon of liquid honey and then hot water and I hated it. (laughs) I mean it, it helped a lot particularly for sore throats and I actually swear by it now but I really really didn't like it. However, as I became a quote unquote adult, um, I realized that honey came in all different forms and I was finally able to try some locally produced, completely raw honey. And I could not believe how delicious it was. It wasn't that strong, almost musty taste that I thought honey tasted like. It was soft and sweet and a little floral and I was entranced. So I ended up searching out different types of honey, um, spring harvest versus fall harvest, different kinds of infused honeys like lavender infused honey and then different ways of um, serving honey I guess is what you could say. By that I mean like is it completely raw or has it been whipped or creamed or sort of processed in some way to give it a different texture and consistency. Um, And right now my current favourites are a creamed honey that I get from one of my teachers, Emily, and um, also the spring honey that I got this year from my neighbour a couple of doors down, which was honestly the lightest and most delicately floral honey I've ever tried. And I was absolutely in love with it. I'm very sad that he's completely sold out. But the reason I'm saying this is that you can see that I had a bad experience with honey and that kind of led to why I didn't have a lot of interest in it. All I knew was that it was made by honeybees and that was kind of it. I'd heard things like if you eat local honey, it might help with hay fever or seasonal allergies. Um, I would heard things about how it might be good for wound healing, but I didn't really have any further interest in looking into honey and its applications or its properties. But you can't have honeybees without honey. And learning all about these fascinating insects has definitely increased my interest in this delightful product of all their diligent hard work. So as a first year beekeeper, my first priority has always been to learn as much as I could about the behavior and the biology of the bees themselves, and also how to keep them effectively and keep them safely. Once I had done a lot of my initial readings and I got this practical experience with bees, I became obsessed with keeping them alive and I still am. And I think that's something that it doesn't matter how many years you've been a beekeeper, I'm I'm sure you feel the same way. 
But now that my first year of practical hands-on beekeeping is nearly behind me, the topic of honey is something that I have the time and the inclination to look into. And that's what has led to this episode. So what exactly is honey? The authors of Honeybee Biology and Beekeeping describe honey as a sweet, viscous liquid produced by honeybees, end quote, which is not very romantic, but is definitely accurate. Historically, many different cultures have called honey the nectar of the gods and believed it fell from the heavens and was actually harvested from the air, not from plants. And there's a lot of different myths and legends about honey and almost kind of as a secondary to honey legends about bees and it makes sense if you think about it I mean if you imagine early man just like discovering a hive and finding it packed with this delicious sweet high calorie food I can completely understand why they might have thought that it was sent to them from the heavens we're getting away from kind of the romantic side of this nectar of the gods Honey is basically a concentrated carbohydrate. And one of the things that makes it so special is that it doesn't require any further digestion of its primary sugars, which are glucose and fructose, which basically means that it's highly digestible, which means it's quickly absorbed and it's absorbed directly from the digestive tract. It doesn't need further uh, digesting or it doesn't travel all the way through your digestive tract before it can be absorbed into the bloodstream. In contrast, sucrose, which is our average table sugar, and plant sugars such as beet, agave, maple syrup, etc., they have to be converted into glucose and fructose before they can be absorbed. So they move further through your digestive tract, they must be digested before absorption, and this basically means that they're less energy efficient than honey. Honey is also pretty special because it contains its own preservatives, which means it's one of the most stable foods to store long term. You might have heard things like how um, you could theoretically go into an undisturbed um, like pharaoh's tomb in Egypt. And if you find like a fully sealed jar of honey, theoretically, you could crack it open and eat that honey and it should be okay. I'm not saying you should do this, <laughs> but, um, you know, that, that's kind of the idea that it could be stable indefinitely if it's in a sealed container. Now, honey is derived from a raw ingredient, which is nectar. So before we can talk a little bit more about honey, let's talk about nectar. What is nectar? Well, nectar is a thin liquid produced by plants that's comprised of water, sugars, plant pigments, vitamins, minerals, and aroma components. It contains roughly equal amounts of the sugars glucose and fructose with small amounts of sucrose. Now, when we talk about nectar, if you are looking into beekeeping or you are a beekeeper yourself, then you're probably familiar or you've at least heard the term the nectar flow or honey flow. And this is referring to the time of year, which is usually spring through summer, when plants are producing a bounty of nectar that the bees will harvest, turning it into delicious sweet honey for their and our consumption. Now, 
the reason that honey is important to bees is that it is their carbohydrate and it is a, a food for them. So I know I've talked a little bit about how when queen bees are being raised, they are raised on royal jelly. And I've also mentioned before that pollen, which bees will also bring back to the hive, is the protein that they will use to eat. So just as we can't survive on protein alone, it's the same for bees. They need their pollen for protein and they need honey for carbohydrates. So back to the nectar flow. There are a number of factors that are going to impact the nectar flow each year and therefore will affect how much honey the bees can produce and that means can we take additional honey from the hives or do we need to leave it for our bees? So some of the things that can impact the nectar flow uh, are things like the presence of nectar and pollen plants. So are you in an area or I guess I should say have you placed your hives in an area that has a, a number of nectar and pollen plants or are you in an area where there's really not a lot for them to forage on? What's the weather doing? Uh, weather is key for nectar production and bee foraging. I know we've talked a little bit um, in my episode about winter prep about like temperatures needed for bees to fly. Well, in terms of nectar production, um, a number of plants need quite intense sunlight for long periods of time. They also need adequate moisture, but not too much rain because rain can actually wash away nectar and it then takes the plant about 24 hours to produce new nectar. Um, ideally what you would like to see is warm days with cool nights as this is very beneficial for nectar production. You also want to have a peak population of bees during this nectar flow period because a weak colony that has a low population during the flow it's going to have fewer foragers and therefore there's going to be a lot less nectar that's coming back to the hive to be turned into honey. And then you also want to think about something called colony morale, which basically just refers to the health and therefore the physical ability of your bees. Are your bees healthy enough to capitalize on the nectar flow? Is your colony stable? Do you have a well-mated, uh, well-laying queen? All these kind of things affect the way bees will um, act, how they feel. <laughs> I want to say how they feel, but it, that's kind of why we call it colony morale how they work as a whole is quite important. So if we're looking at this, it seems that what we can do as beekeepers, or at least what we have some level of control over, is making sure that we have big, healthy colonies that are ready for the nectar flow when it begins in spring. So ideally, we have tested for varroa mites in the fall, treated the hive if it needed treatment, we've left enough honey for them to overwinter, and so they emerge in the spring, and we are there when they emerge, and we give them additional food if they need it, and help them build up enough wax and build up their comb so that they have storage ready for that nectar flow. In terms of weather, that's completely out of our hands and we just have to cross our fingers and hope for the best. Now, the book Honeybee Biology and Beekeeping, which by now you know that I love and I use as a reference for a, almost all of my episodes at this point because it's just so comprehensive. Well, the authors recommend the following in terms of pre-flow hive management. 
So they suggest that what we need to be doing is we need to monitor our colonies for things like mites, signs of disease, requeening, etc. Assess the strength and the population. We should have a good understanding of basic bee biology. How do foragers work? What do they do and what's needed? We should be prepared to add supers promptly as the colony expands and builds up. We should be looking for swarm cells because if our colony swarms, that's a low population left behind. That's not what we need. We want a big population. And we can add queen excluders, which is optional. Um, the queen excluders will basically keep the queen down in the brood boxes and prevent her from going up into the honey supers and laying where you want them to be filling honey. So they absolutely have a place. But as always, remember with queen excluders that there will come a time of year in the fall when they need to come off absolutely before you go into winter. So in terms of nectar flow management, the authors suggest being aware that the nectar flow might just last a few weeks. So you need to be prepared before the flow happens. You want to monitor each hive storage space add supers as needed, which the authors recommend doing when 80% of the frames have capped honey. That would be the time to add either fresh frames or an additional super. They also mentioned that you can move frames inside a super to maximize filling. So for instance, if the frames, the outer frames are empty, you could move those to the center and move the full frames out. But this is pretty time intensive and so it might not work for people who have a lot of hives or maybe you only have a few hives but you have a very limited period of time during the nectar flow to actually be out with your hives. Management aside, we know that honey is made from nectar which the forager bees collect from various plants. The big question is how do bees turn nectar into our sweet, delicious honey? Well, the process goes a little bit like this. A forager returns from its foraging uh, with nectar in her honey stomach. And she meets a hive bee at or near the entrance. And the forager regurgitates the nectar into that bee's mouth who then stores it in her honey stomach. During this process of moving the nectar from one bee to another, a small amount of moisture is lost naturally. The hive bee, who now has a honey stomach full of nectar, seeks a quiet, dark place in the hive, and she starts to reduce the water content of the nectar through a process called active evaporation. She does this by regurgitating a tiny portion of the stored nectar and using it to blow a little bubble, which creates a large surface area for water to evaporate. This little bubble is then returned to her honey stomach, mixed with the re remaining nectar and naturally produced enzymes that the bee adds to her honey stomach. And then she'll repeat the process. And she'll do this over and over and over again, blowing these tiny little bubbles and then mixing it back in, in her honey stomach. And this can take many, many minutes for just one single stomach load. So I mentioned that they, this, uh, the bees produce an enzyme, which is uh, important to this process. And um, there's actually two enzymes that help in this conversion process. 
And these are secreted from a bee's hypopharyngeal glands, which I really hope I nailed that. <laughs> Pronunciation is not my strong point. But um, anyway, so the these uh, enzymes are invitase, which breaks down sucrose into glucose and fructose, and glucose oxidase, which breaks down glucose into gluconic acid. Now, gluconic acid is the primary acid found in honey, and glucose oxidase also breaks down glucose into hydrogen peroxide. Now, the gluconic acid is responsible for honey's low pH, which makes the honey um, inhospitable to bacteria, mold, and fungi. Whereas the hydrogen peroxide is also antibacterial. And these two um, products together in honey is part of what makes it able to be stored for such long periods of time without breaking down or going off, as we say in England. So there's this little hive bee. She's blowing all these bubbles with the nectar. And as she's doing so, she's adding these enzymes, which are breaking down the glucose into gluconic acid and hydrogen peroxide. And the moisture in the nectar is getting lower and lower. At some point, she then stores what is now called ripening nectar, although you can sometimes see it referred to as green honey in the cells of the comb. And when she's placing the nectar into the cells, she'll actually hang little droplets of it to again increase the surface area to allow even more evaporation of water. And this process is called passive evaporation, which makes sense, right? So when she's actively blowing bubbles to increase the surface area, that's active evaporation. And when she's hanging little droplets, that's passive evaporation. So why is it so important that all this water has to be evaporated? Well, to give you an idea, nectar can actually contain as much as 80% water, whereas honey contains less than 20%. Um, I believe that it's 17 to 19% is considered the normal range of honey. So bees are removing this water before storing because there are naturally occurring yeasts in honey that will ferment if there's too much water. And that is not what you want. The bees don't want to store alcohol. They want to store a easily digestible carbohydrate for the winter. By keeping the water content under 20%, honey will not ferment and it will therefore stay good for long periods of time. So once this water has all evaporated, the honey is then capped with beeswax and it's very stable in this form. In fact, honey should last indefinitely and not degrade when it's capped like this, which is really incredible if you think about it. Now, in terms of what's giving honey its delicious flavor, aside from sugar, let's look at what else is in honey. So it's really the composition of honey that is going to give it a particular flavor and the composition is going to depend on what kind of nectar was foraged. So for instance, the elements of nectar that I mentioned previously, such as minerals, vitamins, aroma compounds, etc., that makes up less than 3% of the finished honey, 
but those are also primarily responsible for the unique colour, scent and taste of honey. So we see that what kind of flowers the bees are going to play such a huge role in the end result of our honey. And honey also will contain small amounts of pollen that will um, be kind of falling off the bee during the whole process of storage. And this is totally normal and it's also part of what makes honey good for you. So bees, interestingly, will only go to one plant during each excursion when foraging. And this assists us in getting like varietals of honey such as lavender honey, goldenrod, buckwheat, etc. And kind of how that works is the the beekeeper has to time the honey harvest correctly and be sure to place their hives in an area that is predominantly one type of nectar producing plant. So for instance, maybe you have hives that you place on a lavender farm. And if you do that, and you time your harvest correctly, it's possible to get honey that you can then accurately say is from one type of nectar. And it will have a unique and recognizable taste and scent based on the plant in question. Now, if you're like me and you have your hives at home and you keep sort of a standard homestead or garden situation, then you're going to have a lot of different plants that your bees are going to be foraging on. And it's going to be unlikely that you can ever say, well, you know, this is lavender honey or this is buckwheat honey. Um, So what this kind of mix of nectars that end up in your honey, what we usually say is this is wildflower honey. It is just honey made from a wide variety of different plant nectars. Um, You could say, and like I mentioned earlier, um, my neighbor's spring harvest honey, that tastes very different from his full harvest. The spring harvest is a wildflower. It's whatever his bees were had access to during the nectar flow in the spring. But in the fall, our primary nectar flower comes from goldenrod. And so although technically that is still a wildflower honey because he doesn't have his hives in a field only filled with goldenrod. It has that darker distinctive flavor from a fair amount of the nectar coming from those goldenrod plants. Now, when I was doing research for this episode, um, I was using a couple of different books and one was the Beekeeper's Bible, which I've mentioned before. And it has a really wonderful section on types of honey that they've categorized by light, medium and dark coloration, complete with pictures and descriptions of each type. So I wanted to share two examples to give you an idea of what we're talking about when we talk about a single source varietal honey. So one example would be acacia honey that the book describes as pale, golden yellow, and very clear with a sweet, delicate taste, vanilla and flora aroma, and it stays liquid for a long time. Another example would be tupelo honey, which the book describes as light amber to medium yellow with a greenish glow, mild, distinctive taste, and very sweet. It granulates slowly. I really think if you have the opportunity to get hold of the Beekeeper's Bible or any other book that kind of goes through honey varieties like this, it's definitely worth the read and I found it very interesting. So 
before I move on to how one actually harvests honey, I wanted to just discuss granulation. Granulation is the forming of sugar crystals within honey. And this is completely normal. The reason that this happens is that glucose, which remember makes up roughly half of all the sugars in your honey, is unstable in liquid form. And so it naturally forms crystals. When honey granulates, the liquid portion moves closer to the top of the container with the crystal sinking nearer to the bottom. And it's really important to understand that if you see this, your honey hasn't spoiled. It hasn't gone bad. It's still completely fine and safe to eat. This is a naturally occurring process and you can actually reliquify your honey by very gently warming it, um, like say putting it in a bowl of hot water, like putting the jar in a bowl of hot water. And then once the jar has warmed up, just you know, stirring the honey um, so that everything joins back together again. Um, if you are doing this, be careful that you don't overheat your honey. Now, as a quick side note, um, when looking into all this stuff about honey and granulation, um, I learned how creamed honey is made. And this is my favorite kind. I, If I see a creamed honey for sale, I pretty much always have to buy it, particularly if it's from any local beekeeper, I, I have to have it. And I'd always assumed it was made kind of like whipped honey where you just kind of whipped it really, really fast or you did something to it manually that gave it that really luscious, creamy texture. But that's actually not the case. Creamed honey is created using something called seed crystals that encourage the formation of microscopically tiny crystals that is what gives it that uniform creamy smoothness. So the honey itself isn't affected in any way by the size of the crystals. It doesn't affect the, you know, the flavor or the composition. Um, but the size of the crystals affects the basically just the texture. So this process is called the dice method. For anyone who wants to Google this or look into how to create your own creamed honey. Um, and I'm assuming that this was this whole process was created because when the crystals are this small you're basically avoiding that kind of classic look of granulation that where you have these big clumps of crystals and then that obvious liquid section instead you just have this one consistent beautiful creamy jar of honey so again the process is called the dice method it's used to make creamed honey if you want to google that or look into it in one of your books. Now, granulation is often seen as very unattractive by consumers. Um, I'm not entirely clear why. I guess because humans are quite visual and when we see that, we don't understand and we think it looks weird or it looks bad and it just turns consumers off. So there have been different ways of either slowing the process of granulation or trying to avoid it completely. But what's interesting when I was doing all this reading is that a lot of people argue that honey that granulates is a more pure honey. And the reason for this is it kind of comes down to heat and how heat affects honey. Because heating will help stop granulation. 
but heating honey destroys many of the vitamins, minerals and aroma compounds that makes honey so delicious and good for you. Pure honey or raw honey is considered to be completely unheated because it contains components, those components of nectar that we talked about previously. Now, when you heat honey, this causes the sugar fructose to break down and that produces a chemical called, oh God, (laughs) this is a tough one. Okay, that, that produces a chemical called hydroxymethylferferol, HMF for short. So some people will test honey for levels of HMF, which will indicate whether the honey was heated at high temperatures. And this test is considered like a purity test. So if the honey is pure, it will have low or no levels of HMF. But if it has very high levels of HMF, that indicates that the honey has been heated at high temperatures or it is exceptionally old because fructose will break down naturally over enough time. Heating just speeds up the process. Another way that I learned people test honey for signs of whether it's been heated or not is to test for the enzyme diastase. So when you heat honey, it destroys this enzyme. And that would mean that a honey that's high in diastase has not been heated. If you're just eyeballing honey, I did read something that said heated honey is often very dark in color and has lost a lot of its delicate flavor and aroma. I don't know how helpful that is, but I thought I'd throw it in there. Okay, so after all that babbling, basically we now know what honey is made from, we know how bees produce it, and we know why it's delicious and why it's good for us and why we don't want to heat it. But how do we harvest it? Honey harvesting is going to take place usually in late summer or early fall, in areas where there's a full nectar flow, like here in Ohio, um, a beekeeper can potentially harvest in late spring or very early summer, and then again in mid to late fall. Two harvest sounds rather exciting to this newbie who has had zero harvests. <laughs> so the basic steps of honey harvesting are as follows. You remove your honey supers and the frames. You remove the wax cappings, which allows the honey to be extracted, you then extract the honey. You could be cutting comb into sections for cut comb or chunk honey if you do foundationless frames. You will process the liquid honey, process the beeswax, clean and store your extracted frames, and then start handling your bulk honey. Are you jarring it? Are you preparing it to sell or to give as gifts? Or is it just for you? Now, super removal is pretty self-explanatory you're taking the honey supers off the hive. But how do you know when to take that super off? Well, the general rule from everything that I read seems to be waiting until three quarters of all cells are capped, which I interpret to mean that every single frame in the super has honey and of that honey, three quarters of it are fully capped. Or you could do it another way where you could say you're going to harvest a frame at a time. Well, this frame has three quarters capped honey on it. So I'm going to take that frame out. It does seem from what I've read and from some brief discussions I've had with other beekeepers that you can kind of eyeball this. There is a little bit of wiggle room and the more experience you have, the better able you are to kind of look at things and make a judgment 
Something just to keep in mind is that uncapped honey is not yet ripe, so it doesn't have a low enough moisture content, and that will affect the quality of your honey. So remember, water equals fermentation, and you don't want your honey to ferment. So do be careful and be mindful that most of the honey cells are capped before you start extracting your honey. You also want to be on the lookout for brood in your honey supers. If you extract a frame with brood on it, apparently from everything I've read and from listening to other beekeepers, it makes your honey taste gross. And I can see that because who wants pulverized baby bees in their honey? No one. So be mindful if you pull a frame and it has tons of beautiful honey on it, but right in the middle, it has capped brood. You're going to just put it back and move on to another frame. So let's say you've gone out you have looked at your frames, they're all looking good, Um, almost all of that honey is capped, and you want to take the super off. But that super is full of bees. So how are we going to get those bees to leave all that delicious honey alone? In my research, I came across four methods that seem to be the primary ones for removing bees. The first one is something called bounce and brush, which is exactly as it sounds. You gently bounce each frame to dislodge the bees and then you brush away the stragglers and quickly move that hopefully now clear frame into a spare super or however you're transporting your frames to your honey house. The key with this method though is that you don't want to use too much force because you don't want to break the frames and it's not recommended to bounce the frames against the hive itself which I'm going to be totally honest I'm actually guilty of that if I'm trying to clear a frame because I want the bees to fall back in but when you're out there harvesting your girls are probably already a little pissy with you so don't bounce against the hive and make them even more mad you can bounce the frame by the front entrance so that any girls that fall off can make their way back in side but you're not actually banging against that hive this method it might be better for people who um, just have a couple of hives because it seems like it would be quite time intensive and would also lead to a lot of really really upset bees the uh, next method is bee escapes which are little devices that can fit in the hole of the inner cover and they're basically designed so that they allow the bees down towards the brood boxes but they can't go back up into the honey supers which is perfect that's exactly what you want and generally speaking the bees are going to move down to cluster around the brood and the queen at night when it's a little cooler and then when they wake up in the morning they realize they can't get into the honey supers which leaves them clear for you to take there's something I came across called a triangle board that works in the same way and um, I've actually seen it in pretty much every bee catalogue so it's readily accessible to even you know brand new beekeepers like myself. The only downside that I came across for this method is that if the nights are particularly warm the bees might not be moving down into the brood boxes but I feel like it's still worth a good try. Another option would be a fume board and I've actually never seen these used because I'm so new to beekeeping but it is something that I've come across quite a lot in terms of um, when I'm reading about what other people are doing and it's basically just an uh, a board it's absorbent and you add some kind of repellent to it which you then place um, 
by um, the honey supers. And um, basically what happens is you place it in, the bees hate it, and they just run away from it as soon as possible. And often how the repellent will work is it's the heat of the day that's going to cause it to evaporate faster. So it's it's kind of temperature sensitive and so will therefore work on warmer days better. Um, and if I understand correctly, then it would go above the honey super because you want the bees to, bees will instinctively run down back towards the brood, the brood nest. So you'd put it above the honey supers, the, the sun warms it up, the bees are like, oh God, this is terrible. They flee from it down into the brood boxes and then you quickly go in and you take that clear super off. Something that you could do is you could use forced air, which is basically like a bee blower. So instead of blowing leaves, you're blowing bees and you literally just blow those girls right off the frames. But the trick here is that... Um, you want to make sure that the force of the air isn't so strong that you're actually hurting your bees or potentially damaging the capped honey. Um, I have not seen a like pre-made bee blower. I'm sure that there are people who have instructions on how you could make one yourself. And there's probably a catalogue somewhere that sells one. I'm just not familiar at all. But if this sounds like fun, and it does sound like it would be a really fast way of clearing a super, then I would definitely recommend asking at your uh, local beekeepers association and seeing if anyone has one. Maybe they would let you borrow it and you could experiment. Or maybe you could Google, find instructions on how to make one if you're particularly handy. And um, if you do, please let me know how it works. I'm very curious. I think personally... Uh, when or if, I guess I should say when optimistically, I ever get my first honey harvest, I'm leaning towards using the bee escape uh, or the triangle board with a bee brush kind of as a standby in case not all the bees got the, uh, the message. For me, that seems kind of more in line with how I work. And I only have, you know, three hives right now. So I have a little bit more time to play with. Speaking of time, Regardless of what method you use, when you're harvesting, you want to work as fast as you can. The exposed honey frames, they're going to attract other bees from different colonies. And they're also going to attract like annoying insects like wasps, which can lead to robbing behavior. To discourage this, aside from working quickly, you can cover the frames and or supers as you remove them. So let's say you take one whole super off and you're placing it into a buggy or a golf cart or however you're moving them, put a cover on top and stack up as much as you can of all of your supers, cover each one and then leave as quickly as you can. And for some people like myself, who I can only lift a certain amount of weight because of my back, this might mean breaking down your harvest so you take maybe just one or two supers one day or even just a few frames at a time you go in you take let's say you're doing you have uh 10 frame boxes so you maybe you take five frames put uh fresh frames in for them take those five frames away and extract the honey just you do what works best for you and what you have the time for okay you have removed your honey supers you have managed to escape your hive with minimal stings, minimal pissy girls, and you didn't incite robbing. What do you do now? 
Well, you want to move your honey supers into a warm environment, whether that's a room in your house, a greenhouse, a shed, or a dedicated honey house. You need it to be warm, and the ideal temperature should be about 90 degrees Fahrenheit, 32 degrees Celsius. You also want to keep the humidity below 50% to avoid water getting into your honey. And I saw a recommendation that you place one or two flat um, flans. No, that's a delicious dessert. Um, I do recommend placing delicious dessert around in general, but what I actually read was that you want to place one or two fans around your room to keep the air circulating as you're working. You're also going to want to think about something um, like, what are you going to do if despite your best efforts, you get to your honey house or honey room and there's bees on your frames? What are you going to do? And this could be as simple as you could just put a bee escape over a cracked window and the theoretically the bees will be drawn to the light of the window, they'll go out of the bee escape and that will be it. I don't know how easy this is, that sounds too good to be true. In my experience, bees do what they want. <laughs> but um, just, just keep it in mind that you might have some straggler bees and you might want to consider how you're going to get them out of your room or out of the shed and back to the hives. So let's say that you've got this nice toasty environment to extract your honey and you've placed your frames in there and the frames are warm now because they've been in this 90 degree room for some time. Um, if it's a warm day when you're harvesting, you can probably start extracting straight away. If it's sort of mild, leave them in the warm room for maybe 24 hours um, or so. I did read that you can potentially leave them for a couple of days. Um, it's really kind of how things are working for you. Well, when you're extracting the honey, the first thing you need to do is remove the wax cappings. And there's different options for this. I've seen these like scratchy things where you kind of scratch it all up. I've seen heated knives, either just a knife that people are dipping in hot water or actual like electrically heated knives. Uh, I've seen things that look like modified cheese graters. And um, I've even seen, which I think is awesome, is those ginormous commercial machines that uncap multiple frames at once, move them along a conveyor belt to be extracted. It's, it's all very impressive and it looks very expensive. Um, I will probably use a knife because I'm cheap and there's just me and I would be doing this all by myself. So you're removing the wax cappings and you want to do this over some kind of container because you want to save those cappings. Beeswax is a commodity in itself and I'll talk a little bit about how you can process process your wax later on. So everything I've read it seems like when you're extracting honey there's there's two main methods. You can extract using some kind of machine or you crush the comb and you strain. From what I have seen, a lot of people use a machine. And these machines can be small that hold maybe just two frames or very, very large that can hold like 40 plus frames. A number of them, you crank them with a handle for them to turn and others are electric and you plug them in and you let you know power do all the work for you. But all of these machines work in the same way, and that is that they use centrifugal force to literally fling the honey from the cells. So basically, the machine is spinning frames, and the force of spinning them is causing that honey to go flying out of the cells. It hits the wall, 
of the machine drips down to the bottom and then can then be released from that um, extractor. And I noted that there's two different um, kinds of honey extractors. There's the tangential extractor and a radial extractor. Now for the uh, tangential extractor, the frames are positioned so that the face of the comb is at a right angle to the center spindle. And as it rotates, it causes the honey on the outer face to be only partially extracted. You then turn the frame so the other side faces out, partial extraction occurs, you then turn it again and you just keep repeating this um, process of turning the frame until all of the honey has been extracted. So each frame is going to need multiple rotations for full extraction. And it seems like this method Um, you just need to keep an eye that it doesn't rotate too fast as there is a slightly higher chance that it could damage the honeycomb. And ideally, and what's so great about using a machine to extract is that it's removing the honey, but it's leaving all of that beautiful wax comb behind for the bees to use again. In a radial extractor, the frames are positioned so they radiate out from the center with the top bars facing out and the bottom bars facing the center spindle. So the general appearance, if you're looking down, is like the spokes on a bicycle wheel. Uh, A great thing about this extractor is that honey is extracted from both sides of the frames at the same time. So it's a faster means of extraction. And because of the way the frames are actually held in this extractor, there's a decreased risk of comb breakage. So for me, when I read this, I was like, okay, well, great, a radial extractor, that's a no-brainer, right? I mean, it sounds like it works faster, I'm not doing as many rotations, and it's not going to break the comb, or it has a lower chance of breaking the comb. The problem, though, is the price, which is a fact of life, right? Honey extractors in general are expensive. A lot of them, if you're buying one, they're going to start around $200, and they're going to go up from there. And radial extractors, at least from what I've seen, it looks like they're usually built for quite a large number of frames at once, which obviously is going to increase their size and therefore their price, and it can make them less accessible for a small-scale beekeeper like myself. Now, some people who are super handy, like my neighbour, he built his own extractor, and it holds just two, uh, no, I'm sorry, it holds about four frames at a time. And from what I've seen, it is a radial extractor that he just built himself. And there are actually a lot of websites with wonderful instructions on how you could do this. Um, I'm going to look into it, but I'm going to be honest, I'm not holding out hope. I'm not super handy. And my husband, who is the builder of the family, is so busy that I really can't imagine that he's going to have the time to help me not like blow up the garage when I'm trying to build something like this. But if anyone listening or if you are reading my blog post, which will go up about this as well, and you've made your own radial extractor, I would love to hear from you. Let me know how it went. Was it way more difficult than you expected? Did you come across any hurdles? Um, And how are you liking it? Is it working? Um, Do you wish you'd bought or are you really happy with what you have? Please, please let me know. I'd love to hear from you. So let's say that any kind of machine 
it's just not feasible for you. Like you don't have the funds or you're not willing to invest in it or you're like me and you can't build things or you don't trust yourself to deal with anything that could potentially involve electricity. And so what are your options? Well, then you're looking at that crush and strain method. And if you have foundationless frames, you just cut the whole comb out, crush it, and then strain that through some kind of sieve. So the honey comes out and is collected and you're left behind with all the beeswax. I also saw something that basically said that you can you can uh, crush everything, wrap it in like a very, very fine cloth and then hang the bag and gravity will pull that honey slowly out into some kind of waiting container. If you're using foundation in your frames, like I do, and like many people who do Langstroth hives do, you basically scrape everything off that plastic foundation. So you're not just removing the cappings, you're scraping everything all of that comb right off the plastic foundation into whatever kind of crushing container is your choice now unsurprisingly this is a more traditional method because you know people weren't building stainless steel radial extractors in the dark ages um and so there's actually some honey producers who exclusively use this method and it's kind of part of their marketing it's part of their selling point Um, And it's a source of pride for a lot of people that they manually crush and strain all of their honey by hand. And probably because, you know, there's a lot of time and effort involved in this. It's It's a slower process. It requires patience. And also some people, they really love that feeling of being connected to previous generations. They like the idea of doing it like people did a long time ago. And I think that's really interesting. And this is a method that I would like to at least try, maybe just a small amount of frames for at least once. It seems like something that would be quite enjoyable to try. Now, if you do use foundationless frames, you also have an additional option for honey extraction, which is cut comb honey. And this is basically where you take that frame of beautiful, pure beeswax, packed full of honey and you cut it into sections that fit into whatever kind of containers you wish to use and then you fill the remaining space of that container with liquid honey so what you could do is you would take that comb uh, cut it from the frame place it on a fine screen cut it into the desired uh, sections And then you'd actually allow the honey to drain for a day or so because you've probably broken some cells during the cutting. You you don't want it, you know, oozing everywhere, let it drain. And then once it's drained, you place that comb into your container and then fill it with some of that beautiful liquid honey. Um, Now, the Honeybee Suite website has a really awesome guide complete with a video on harvesting cut comb honey. And I will share the um, link to that um, on my blog. And you can always find the link to my blog in the episode notes and description. So please be sure to check that out. Another option I came across is um, this method of using like really small, often circular, but sometimes square supers. Um, The circular ones, a method that's quite popular, uh, or a brand, I guess I should say, is called Ross Rounds. And basically you place these tiny supers um, above your uh, hive and the bees move into it. They build beautiful raw beeswax combs and then they fill it with honey. 
And instead of just removing like a frame, you remove that whole miniature super and then sell it as is. You don't do anything to it. You literally take that super off, seal it, and then sell it or give it to friends, neighbors, loved ones, whichever. And I thought that was pretty cool. And there's um, a couple of different supers, like uh, sizes and shapes and all that kind of stuff uh, that you could use. And I haven't really looked into that much at this point because I don't know. I'm so just nervous about getting my bees through the winter that the thought of honey harvesting is really fun, but that seems very finicky to me right now. Um, but again, the Honey Bee Suite website has a really great article about the author's experience with Ross Rounds. And it's actually, if you go to the um, Cut Comb Honey article I mentioned and you look at the bottom of the page, you'll see links to her other... Um, blog posts about using small supers as a method of extracting honey. Now the obvious downside to any kind of whole comb method where you're crushing your comb is that you're destroying all of that beautiful beeswax and that means that you're putting back your frames into your hives and your bees are going to have to build all that wax comb all over again and as I've mentioned before Wax creation is a lot of work for your girls and they need the time to do it. Now, if you're thinking ahead to maximize your honey harvest year after year, you want to have comb ready for your girls so they don't have to spend the time and the energy building it. They can just go straight into packing the cells full of honey. So let's go back to liquid honey extraction whether you're using a machine or you're crushing and straining. You have now, hopefully, a large amount of deliciousness. What do you do with it? The next step would be to strain the honey. And you do this to remove any impurities like tiny chunks of wax, um, any kind of general debris from the hive or kind of the process of extraction. And from what I could find, it looks like your option is like a single fine strainer or some people use a double strainer, which is like two str- two filters placed over each other. The top filter is coarse and the bottom one is fine. And you would be filtering the honey into something that's called a settling tank. And this is basically any kind of container but it looks like usually it's stainless steel or it's a food grade plastic tub that the honey can be safely stored in before you bottle it. And you actually want to let your honey sit in this tank for a day or so so that it settles, hence the term settling tank. And the reason you want it to settle is that basically if you missed any tiny bits of beeswax during the straining process that's going to float to the top and bubbles so basically air in the honey is going to float to the top as well which you can then remove before you start uh, bottling your liquid gold so many of these tanks they'll actually come with a little spigot at the bottom uh, that allows you to just drain your honey directly from them and what's again this is going to be in your your heated room Although some of these tanks are fancy and they are electrically heated so you can set it to the optimal temperature 
and it will store your honey at that temperature which will help to avoid crystallization and it also means that the honey is going to flow more easily but you're not removing any nutrients that will make the honey taste so good because you're not really uh, fully heating it you're keeping it at a mild temperature So some of the stuff I read about uh, keeping any bottled honey free of a great deal of bubbles is um, if you are just starting to bottle, then you want to open the spigot and let a little bit of honey drain first and then set that aside and then bottle. Because um, if there's any bubbles that have formed around the spigot, those will come out first. Um, I also was reading that if you let the honey go down the side of your jar as it comes into your container that can help reduce air forming and I also read that you should keep an eye on the honey coming from the spigot if you see bubbles beginning to form stop give it time to settle again and then restart the process now if you're planning to sell your honey um, one thing you'd want to do is you're going to want to weigh your bottles to ensure that you have an accurate weight listed on them. And you also need to look into your state's regulations to be sure that you don't accidentally get yourself in trouble. Um, I think a good resource for this would be to Google your um, your local government website or go to your local club and ask around. Ask um, or if you have a mentor, you know, just ask people who've been selling honey find out what they've been doing, um, see if they would be willing to um, talk to you about what the process is. I haven't looked into it. If I get honey that I'm not just going to devour myself, I'm going to be gifting it to friends. I have no intention right now. I mean, the idea of selling honey, that's, I'm sorry, that was dog tags. Um, I think my, I think my babies are getting a little restless. Um, I don't think they understand why mommy just talks into this microphone. They haven't figured it out. Uh, anyway, sorry about that. Um, yeah, the idea of selling honey is a dream. I would love to do it eventually, but it's just too far in the future. I'm not going to start looking into my state regs just yet. Um, maybe that's a second year thing. Watch this space. So let's say that you've you extracted your honey, you've filtered it, you've let it settled, you've bottled it for sale, for giving to people, or just for you to keep for yourself. How do you clean all of your super sticky equipment? In my experience, honey is a complete bugger to clean off things. So what do we know that's good at removing honey? Bees. So (laughs) you can place your extracted frames out for your girls to clean. But as always, what happens if we place delicious sugary things out and exposed? We can incite robbing. It just seems like a constant issue. So something I read, which I thought was pretty clever, is instead of just putting those frames out with no lid and letting all the bees fight it out for who gets it, what you can do is take an empty super, fill it with the extracted frames, place that on top of a hive and then cover as you usually would. The bees in the lower boxes, they're going to come up to investigate what smells so delicious and then they'll start licking the frames clean. And they're doing this under the safety of the hive lid, which is going to decrease the chances of robbing the added bonus to this is that depending on the time of year your bees actually might need those newly empty cells so once they've licked them clean they might start filling them again Um, particularly if let's say you put this box on after the spring harvest and you're anticipating a full harvest so it's great it saves you time the bees are happy you're happy hooray but as for your equipment you want to clean that 
as quickly as possible. And everything that I've read indicates that you want to use cold water, not hot. And to some that might seem obvious, to me, I was actually surprised. I definitely would have used hot water and ruined everything. Um, you can use a very mild soap, but you really need to be careful to rinse absolutely thoroughly because you don't want even tiny amounts of that soap in your next uh, harvest. So maybe avoid it. Maybe just try with the cold water, see how that works. Once you have rinsed everything thoroughly, you're going to make sure you want to make sure that it's fully dry before you store it. And you also want to cover it with something so it doesn't become dusty until you use it again. Um, if it's a small, if you're, you know, a small beekeeper like myself and you use like a really tiny extractor and a really tiny settling tub, maybe you could get one of those giant plastic containers and you can just store it in there where it's airtight and it's keeping all the dust out or just wrap it and then put it aside. When you do dig out your equipment for your next harvest, just give it a quick wipe down with a clean dry cloth just to be on the safe side that there's no, you know, dust or debris um, hanging around in there. And then theoretically you're done. Or are you? So what do we have left? I've talked about cleaning the frames, I've talked about cleaning the equipment, but we have beeswax cappings, right? And we cut those off and we stored them. Well, what do we do with the beeswax cappings? Well, beeswax is a valuable commodity and it would be a shame to waste it because your girls worked so hard making all that wax and you can use it in a variety of ways. So you want to start processing your beeswax by collecting it all in a container and then either allowing the remaining honey to drain from it, catching that honey in a pan or tub below, because we don't want to waste any of that liquid gold, right? So you could set it up so it's on some kind of sieve and underneath is a catching pan and the honey drips down. Uh, you could set out the cappings for your bees to clean. But again, this does invite robbing. And there's also kind of an issue of biosecurity. If you put the cappings out where any hive can get to it, then bees from all different colonies will come check it out to lick it clean. And you could actually facilitate the spread of disease. That's just something to keep in mind. But let's say that you do have your bees clean it for you or you let the honey drain. You then want to rinse your wax cappings using fresh, cool water. The key thing here is do not do this in your sink. I have seen some horror stories where people have plugged their drains terribly and there's like three inches of solid beeswax plugging up their drain and they've spent a lot of money having plumbers come out to remove it. Or I guess if you're handy dandy and you feel confident you can unplug your own pipe, go for it. But generally speaking, don't do this in a sink. You know, do it in uh, some kind of separate tub or container. Once your cappings are clean and rinsed, you can melt them down. And you want to melt them because you want to allow debris and other impurities to separate from that pure beeswax and then be removed. There's a couple of different ways that you can uh, melt the wax. You can use an electric wax melter, uh, a solar wax melter. You can actually do it directly in water or you can use a double boiler method. Regardless of whatever method you go with, uh, please be careful that you'd never overheat beeswax. Uh, beeswax is highly flammable and wax fires are very difficult to put out, which makes them extremely dangerous. So please always be careful when you are working with beeswax. Once you have your lovely melted wax and you've scraped off any impurities that have risen to the top, you might need to um, 
melt it like a number of times until you have a consistent creamy coloration. You can pour it into various molds or containers to store. Uh, beeswax is a wonderful addition to body care products like moisturizers, uh, body lotions, lip balm, etc. Um, and also you can make it into beautiful, highly fragrant candles. So you have a lot of options. Um, you can actually even sell beeswax or enter it into a local competition. I was surprised but delighted to learn that there are competitions at various conferences or fairs where you can enter honey to be judged and you can have your beeswax be judged and they look at the quality and the beauty and the purity of your beeswax and how you present it. So there's all kinds of things you could get into if you want to and if you are crafty. Um, for a really good article on this process, I found a website called Carolina Honeybees and the author had a really wonderful, really clear article on this um, and I will share that on my blog and she even has a link to instructions on how to make your own solar melter which is a very affordable option for those of us who aren't looking to spend a lot of money to get started and that's basically it or at least it's an overview of the whole process I'm sure there are all kinds of things that I've missed or maybe there are things that I need to experience it to fully grasp or understand. I'm sure there's a lot more involved in this process, but this kind of gives you a general idea of what you're looking at for your first harvest and how everything works. Um, I am optimistically hoping for a harvest, even if it's a tiny one next year. Um, I actually could have taken at least two frames for a tiny, tiny harvest from my big hive, but I didn't want to because I am paranoid about winter and I would rather leave them too much food than not enough. So if you're a first year beekeeper like myself, you may or may not have harvested honey this year. If you didn't, you are not alone. I didn't either uh, due to a mixture of bee drama, hashtag bee drama, um, and being paranoid about winter, as I just said. If you did, that is awesome. I am very happy for you. I hope you are savoring every spoonful of all that hard work that you and your bees put into that liquid gold. And if you did have your first harvest this year, I would love to hear from you. Send me an email, leave a comment. Just tell me how it went for you. Um, was it easy? Did you stumble or did you end up being chased by bees back to your honey house? Let me know how it went. I would really, really love to hear from you. And tell me, how does that honey taste? Is it everything that you wanted it to be? Now, one quick aside before I go, I've been reading a book called Robbing the Bees by Holly Bishop, and it is wonderful. It is a history of honey and an account of her time following a commercial honey farmer in Florida and her experience keeping her own bees. Uh, the author, Holly Bishop, has put so much research into an extremely long history of honey through the ages. And I am just delighted by some of the facts that she has unearthed. It really amazes me how before the days of science, so many people just made assumptions about things and then confidently stated them as facts. For instance, one ancient author wrote with utmost confidence that bees would hold on to small pebbles to stabilise their flight during heavy wind. What did he base this on? Apparently nothing at all, but he still had the white man confidence to write it down as fact. Ah, the good old days. 
some ancient beliefs about bees are charming. Um, I actually love the idea of little bees holding pebbles. That's adorable. And um, I actually mentioned at the beginning of the episode about how honey was originally believed to come from the gods and that bees harvested it from the air, not from plants. Well, did you know that for an extremely long period of time in human history, it was believed that bees harvested their babies from plants? How sweet is that? And I have to admit, I found that charming, but bizarre. Why would you assume that an insect would get its babies from plants? So I mentioned this to my husband and he pointed out to me that actually for a huge part of human history, it was believed that most things were spontaneously produced. So even though it was accepted that some animals reproduced amongst themselves, and obviously people understood that a man and a woman together would create a tiny human, somehow people still accepted this belief that other things just sprung into existence. In fact, this belief is called spontaneous generation and it was first coherently discussed and put down on paper by Aristotle. So this was a long time in history where people are like, oh yeah, these things just spring up and that's how it works. And it kind of seems like madness to me, but I suppose for the time it made perfect sense and it's easy for me to look back and judge. But my point is, if you think that any of these facts are bizarre or charming or fun in any way, then you're going to want to find a copy of Holly Bishop's book and give it a read. And I don't think you'll be disappointed. It's it's really wonderful. Um, I will put down the name again and the author on my blog post so you can um, find it. So that was a bit long. Um, thank you, as always, for sticking with me. I really appreciate all of you who tune in. Uh, please remember to check out my blog for website links and a complete source reference. Uh, The link is in my episode description as always. Um, If you found yourself listening by going through my blog, uh, please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. If you'd like to reach out to me with questions or just to chat, you can find me at Homestead Hens and Honey on Instagram, Homestead Hens on Twitter and Homestead Hens and Honey at gmail.com. I haven't fully decided on the topic for my next episode, um, but I'm thinking it might be about what I had planned for this year, what I accomplished, what I didn't, what I'm hoping to get done in 2020, and kind of what I've learned through this first year of beekeeping and um, what, what my garden, what my hens, what this homestead have taught me this past year. So watch this space. As always, that will be, um, I will have that new episode up in two weeks. Until then, remember, hug your hens and then wash your hands. Goodbye.